Okay, we are looking at the scripture, Hebrews 12, 1 through 11. And this uh, sermon title is called The Discipline of a Father. This is Hebrews 12, 1 through 11. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful, rather than pleasant. But later, it yields up the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This is God's word. Well, she was a 17-year-old, blonde, blue-eyed uh, blue girl. Uh, and she loved to do the things that 17-year-old girls uh, did. She loved to be with her friends. She loved horses. She loved playing in the Chesapeake Bay. But one day, Johnny Erickson decided to dive off the pier in the Chesapeake Bay without checking the depth of the water. And she hit her head and compressed her spine and instantly became a quadriplegic. While all of her friends were getting ready to go to college, Johnny Erickson, now Johnny Erickson Tata, spent the next two years in a hospital learning to live without arms and without legs. Johnny's story, now she was a Christian. She had actually met the Lord through the ministry of Young Life. She loved Jesus Christ. And yet this uh, disaster uh, came upon her. And we're forced to ask the question when we look at someone like this so full of promise, what are we to make of the problem of pain? What are we to make of when bad things happen to us, when unforeseen circumstances come along and threaten us, threaten our lives and our beliefs? We all have experienced suffering in this life. If you haven't yet, no worries. It will be coming. Nobody gets through this life without nicks and cuts. We've experienced physical suffering, whether cancer or a miscarriage or a longer bout with some type of sickness. Maybe you've experienced emotional suffering, a spouse who no longer loves you, children who you don't speak with, the issues of abandonment as a child. If God is our heavenly father, I'm speaking, of course, to believers who believe in Jesus Christ, why is there so much pain? This is the question that the church uh, in the book of Hebrews is asking. 
See, they have decided to follow Jesus Christ, and they are experiencing persecution because of it. Some have lost jobs. Some have been evicted from their homes. Some have been ostracized from their community. And they're wondering, if God loves me, if God is my father, why am I experiencing this pain? This scripture answers that question for us. It tells us that our Heavenly Father is doing something far greater than simply giving us a life of ease and comfort. The goal of our Heavenly Father is to transform us, His children, into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. And God's discipline, which is often painful, is the primary tool that He uses. You see, God's plan for our redemption is refined in the furnace of affliction. And so we're going to take a look at discipline, God's discipline, our Father's discipline, and how he uses it and what it does in our lives. We're going to look at three specific points. Number one, the proof of discipline. What does discipline prove? Number two, the purpose of discipline. What is discipline doing in our lives? And finally, the promise of discipline. Because the goal of our redemption is defined in the furnace of affliction. Well, let's begin with point number one, the proof of discipline. It was M. Scott Peck, the uh, author of the book, The Road Less Traveled, uh, that started off with the point that life is difficult. See, the biggest problem with pain is that it hurts. And life teaches us to run from pain. When you are a child, a little uh, toddler, and you go and you reach out and grab the family cat, and the family cat scratches you, and you receive pain, you recognize, don't reach out and grab the family cat anymore. Or if you put your hand on the hot stove and burn it, you hurt and you know not to touch that stove anymore. So all pain is bad, at least we start thinking that. The world indeed is a very, very dangerous place and it's easy to get hurt. And so a good parent will introduce a new type of pain. And that pain is called discipline, or the Greek word here in this passage is paideia, which means more than discipline. It actually means instructive discipline. It means discipline with a goal to mature and make complete. Now, if you are a parent, you understand this. When you have a very small child and you're in the front uh, yard and your child runs out into the street you grab that child and you bring them back and you give them a spanking. Well, why do you give them a spanking? Because you want to have them associate that running out into the street is bad. And even though the spanking hurts, it's gonna hurt a lot more if you get hit by a car. Now, if a child runs out into the street and your neighbor grabs them, most likely your neighbor is not going to spank them the neighbor is going to hand them over to the parent. Why? Well, because the neighbor doesn't care, at least not to the degree that the parent does. You see, it's the parent that spanks, not the neighbor, at least hopefully. The spanking is the proof that the parent loves the child. It is the paideia, or the instructive discipline. And so the discipline is proof that you are a child of a father, a heavenly father in this case. Notice verse 5 and 6. My son, 
excuse me, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines those he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Notice those that the heavenly father loves, those he loves, he disciplines and he chastises every son that he receives. Not some sons. And when you're speaking of sons here, we're speaking of sons and daughters. He's not being discriminatory. Everyone is a son of God, and everyone is also a bride of Christ. He's using the illustration. We're both sons and daughters, but we receive all the fullness of the rights of sonship as inheritance went to the son in this culture. He's speaking culturally there. And so the writer says, do not regard lightly. In other words, do not have little regard for what God the Father is doing in this process of discipline for you. Verse 7 says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. In other words, discipline is part and parcel of what it means to be a child of our Heavenly Father. We all too often think of our Heavenly Father not as a father, but more as a butler or as a grandfather. A butler, of course, simply gets you what you want when you need it. A grandfather doesn't really participate in the discipline. He just loves on us. He leaves the discipline to the parent. So if the Father disciplines us, how do we determine what is the Lord's discipline in the world, in our lives, and what is not? See, there's much evil in the world, and the things that happen to us, are those all part of the Lord's discipline? And the answer, as we see in this scripture, is that everything that is happening to us is paideia whether it's sin or not. Indeed, the life of Jesus is used as an example of what God is doing in our lives. Notice verse 3. Consider him, Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. This hostility that Jesus experienced from sinners is part of God's paideia, the instructed discipline that was on him. That's why he's saying, consider, church, what was done to Jesus. In your own struggle against sin, verse 4, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And then he goes right into verse 5, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. In other words, look at Jesus' life and the hostility experienced from sinners, and that's used as a case study for the discipline that we are experiencing in our own lives. Well, this brings up the question, is God the author of sin? And the answer, of course, is no. Sin is a product of the evil one, of Satan, of the devil. But God is Lord over sin. The scriptures are clear about that. And he uses sin, he uses all things, including sin, for his instructive discipline purposes. Think of the life of Joseph, for instance. Joseph, who was sold into slavery by his his brothers, 
who sold him into slavery, who lied uh, to uh, Joseph's dad. And Joseph experienced immense amount of suffering in prison and as he was separated from his father. But, in the very, but that suffering actually shaped Joseph's life. And Joseph was able to gain perspective on that. So in the end, when he uh, confronted his brothers in Egypt, what he said was, what you intended for evil, God intends for good. It was a wise Christian who said this, that the suffering of sickness and the suffering of persecution have this in common. They are both intended by Satan for the destruction of our faith and governed by God for the purifying of our faith. Christ sovereignly accomplishes his loving, purifying purpose by overruling Satan's destructive attempts. Satan is always aiming to destroy our faith, but God magnifies his power and weakness. See, the writer is telling the Hebrew church, and I am telling you that all of the evil and the persecution and the difficulty and suffering in the world, though it may be intended by Satan for evil, God is intending it for good. Because God is sovereign, God is using all of it as his paideia, his instructive discipline, even though all too often we don't understand it. I remember when we had our firstborn son, Mark, who was a a baby, and we went to visit my parents in Oklahoma. And it was Christmas Eve, and Mark was not doing well physically. And so we took him into uh, the ER. In fact, it was I that took him into the, uh, the ER. And they determined that he needed a shot or two of something. I don't know what it was. Now, how do you explain to a 10-month-old that they're going to receive a shot? And that shot is necessary for them to be healed, to get better, instead of feeling so bad. There was no way I could do it. And yet I knew exactly that's what he needed. And it was more important for him to experience that little pain for all of the benefits and blessings it was going to give. And so as that shot was given, I held my son as he looked up into my eyes and cried, not understanding. Now, all analogies are not perfect, My response there was reactive to something that had come upon my child. But God is always proactive. God is not responding. God is in charge of everything. All sinfulness, all wrong, God is over it, even though he is not the author of it, and he's using it for good in the lives of his people. There are many hard things that we experience in our life that we don't understand. Perhaps you are the one that got the phone call. You were the statistic that you have cancer and that you're going to have to undergo chemo and radiation and all of the various sufferings and trials that come along with that disease. What the scriptures are telling us is that God is in charge, that this is not a mistake. Indeed, even though we don't understand it, it's part of of God's instructive discipline to mature us in faith. And sometimes, God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. And so what do we need to do in the circumstances? We need to reframe them. We need to look not to the circumstances, but rather to his character. 
to his loving paideia, understanding that God is in the middle of this, even though I can't see it. That he's using even this evil and suffering to accomplish good in my life. It's the proof of discipline that he's actually there. It was Johnny Erickson Tata that said, real satisfaction comes not in understanding God's motives, but in understanding his character, in trusting in his promises and in leaning on him and resting in him as the sovereign who knows what he is doing and he does all things well. When we're hurting, when we're doubting, let's ask him for strength, for faith, and remember that the discipline is proof that God is there and a greater blessing is coming for Johnny and for myself. For proof of discipline is that we are children of God. This brings me to my second point, the purpose of pain. You know, it would be easier if we understood what God was up to. Why do we need this instructive discipline? Well, the passage tells us the purpose of this pain in verse 10. Our earthly father disciplines us for a short time as it seemed best to them. Our earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But God disciplines us for our own good that we may share in his holiness. The purpose of pain is so that we may share in his holiness. Now, we know that holiness is essential is an essential attribute of God's character. In the Hebrew scriptures, there is no punctuation. There are no exclamation points to point out something. And so when they want to go ahead and communicate that something's very important or something's very intense, they repeat it. And if they really, really want to communicate that something's important, they communicate it three times. And if you look through the entire Old Testament, in the entire scriptures, many times God's character is talked about, but only once is it talked about in the intensive of three times. It's the characteristic of God's holiness. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The word holiness means otherness. That God is other than us. Isaiah 40, 25 puts it this way. God says, to whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these stars. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name. God is holy. He is without blemish. And God is in the business of making holy people began when God took a people to himself called Israel and set them apart, that they would be holy to the Lord, that they would be able to meet with the other one because they were other. When God created the temple, he gave very specific instructions for the vestments that the priests would wear, for the articles of the temple, that they would need to have all of these various rituals done to them so that they would become sanctified or they would be Holy, they would be set apart. For without holiness, no one will see the Lord, it says. Without holiness, the alternative is to be unclean. And so we see that this process of discipline that we experience is 
for our own good that we may share in his holiness. Well, as Carlos says, what you're saying is that it's suffering and pain is what makes me acceptable to God? No, I'm not saying that at all. God is speaking here in the scriptures in the context of relationship. We're already children of God. It's the fact that we are already children of God that God is doing this. In other words, he's justified us, and now he's in the process of sanctifying us. We have not yet been completed, if you will. That God is, a pro- is doing a process in our lives in this life to change us and shape us into the people that we were meant to be. It was James 1-2 that says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in in nothing. In other words, we must mature. And God puts us on a process of maturing in this life. And a big way that we mature and grow is through the instructive discipline that involves suffering. It was Charles Spurgeon that said, I am certain that I never did grow in grace one half so much anywhere as I have upon the bed of pain. Because it's on the bed of pain that we're able to start taking our eyes off the world and the things of this world and placing them on God. The pastor John Piper says, I've never heard anyone say that the really deep lessons of life have come through times of ease and comfort. But I've heard strong saints say every significant advance I've ever made in grasping the depths of God's love and growing deep with him has come through suffering. It's in suffering that we come to the end of ourselves. It's in God's discipline and the suffering that comes with it that we learn more contentment in God and less satisfaction in the world. In which we learn to lean on his resources and off those of ourselves. Well, Carlos, are you saying that we should seek suffering? No, I'm not saying that. We should never court suffering or complain about it, but rather to see it for what it is. God's painful process and purpose for molding us into holy people. I remember, it was probably about 15 years ago, that I owned a car. It was a Ford Contour. It was kind of like the Ford Econobox, if you will, of the day. And I was driving on 264, wasn't paying great attention, and lo and behold, I had a, I had a van before me, The car in front of the van stopped, and so the van plowed into that car. Well, I wasn't paying enough attention. I was too close, so I plowed my car into the van. And the front of that little car just kind of accordioned. Airbag didn't go off. I was okay, but as I got out of my car and I looked at my Ford Contour, I thought to myself, "This, this thing is totaled. Well, we took it to the Ford dealership, and it turned out that it wasn't totaled. But it was a mess. I think I, I think I bent the frame. If I didn't bend the frame, I bent everything else. But you see, it was wise to take it to the Ford dealership. Because Ford is the one who made the car. And they said, if you give us five weeks, we're going to bring this car back to you. 
just the way it should be. You know, if I had been that car, over the next five weeks, it would have been a painful process day after day as they stretched me back out and reshaped me and reformed me into what I was supposed to be. For they had a vision of what I was supposed to be. And they had the means to make it happen. Now here's what's amazing. If I had gone back to the Ford dealership and instead of giving me my contour back, they would have given me a Ford GT, which costs about $150,000. See, God is in the business not only of reforming us, but transforming us into a new template, a new design, the image of perfection, not the fallen selves of sin that we were living in this world, but rather the person of Jesus Christ. And so what you need to understand, my friends, is that we're all in the shop. God is in the process of taking us and transforming us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And it's a painful process. Day by day, moment by moment, it seems like we're getting nowhere. But God knows what he's doing. And so what must we do during this process? If we must reframe our understanding of discipline, we must resist and remain as well. We must resist sin during this process. Notice verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood. In other words, you're in a battle as this sin assails you, as God allows it to be used as instructive discipline for you. Notice in verse 1, he was talking about a race. Let us run with perseverance. But now he's talking about a battle. In the pentathlon, the ancient pentathlon in the Olympic Games, which were going on back then, the first event was the race. And the last event was boxing. And in that boxing, in that battle, they would basically wrap their hands up and they would fight until one could fight no longer. What he's saying is that you have to resist sin. It is a battle. And each confrontation is, with sin is a mini battle in which we're either drawing closer to Christ or further away from him. Are you in a compromising situation somewhere? whether it's at your work where your employer is asking you or telling you to do something that you know is wrong or not in line with your moral values. It's a confrontation, a struggle. And so you must resist sin by seeking out what his word says, by praying to God for help, by seeking out others to run this race with. Boxers need cornermen and we need the church to help resist sin. But we must not only resist sin, but remain in the faith. Sometimes it's just about holding on. For at the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. There are many, many who have come before us, who have fought and remained until the end. 
As verse 1 says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. There's a purpose to our pain, and we will come forth in the end is gold if we resist and remain. That brings me to my final point, the promise of pain. It's hard when we experience the instructive discipline of the Lord. If we need to resist and remain, there's one thing left that we need to do. We need to remember. Remember that you're not alone. Look at verse 3. Consider Jesus, who endured such hostility from sinful men, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. It's looking and considering the life of Jesus that gives us strength. I mean, if there was anyone that had the right to say, why to God? Or this isn't fair to God. It would be Jesus. But Jesus knew that there was a purpose and a promise to this pain, the redemption of his people. You know, the one thing that we can never say to God is that you don't understand pain. But you, because Jesus Christ paid the ransom payment his life, that was the cost to buy us. See, in order for us to be remain, remade, he needed to be deformed. In order for us to be made holy, he needed to be made unclean. And in order for death to work backwards in our lives, death had to work forward in his. So remember his suffering. When you want to quit, Remember the promise of discipline that Christ resisted and Christ is with us. Remember not just his suffering, but remember his glory. That the, through, for the joy of redemption, Christ endured the furnace of affliction. Yes, he went down into the tomb. But because he was recognized as having victory over sin, he did not stay dead. As the glazed pot must cure in the furnace, so Christ cured in the tomb, and so we must cure in the cocoon of suffering. But Christ came forth, not with his old body, but with a new one, in the resurrection. And so shall we also, if we remember the promise of pain. Well, Joni, Johnny Erickson Todd is now 70 years old. And she continues to run the ministry, Johnny and Friends. But she knows something about perspective. She says, in a way, I wish I could take to heaven my old tattered wheelchair. I would point to the empty seat and say, Lord, for decades I was paralyzed in this chair. But it showed me how paralyzed you must have felt to be nailed to your cross. My limitations taught me something about the limitations you endured when you laid aside your robes of state and put on the indignity of human flesh. At that point, with my strong and glorified body, I might sit in that wheelchair, rub the armrests with my hands, look up in Jesus and add, the weaker I felt in this chair, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned, the more I discovered how strong you are. Thank you, Jesus, for learning obedience in your suffering. You gave me grace to learn obedience in mine. 
In hardship, Johnny learned obedience, and she learned about Jesus. And so we must consider Jesus. We must reframe our perspective on suffering, resist and remain in the midst of the trial, and finally remember Jesus. Whatever it is that you're going through, there may be a tomb, but there is a resurrection. Do not despise the discipline of the Lord, for God is treating you as a son and a daughter. The goal of our redemption is refined in the furnace of affliction. Let's pray. God, even though all too often we don't understand our circumstances, we understand your character. And God, we know that you're doing a good work in our life, and you promise that you will complete it. And so, God, help us to reframe our discipline and suffering, to resist sin, and to remember your son, Jesus, who prevailed in the midst of suffering to redeem us. Pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.